0: Hi and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Mike Buckby, Chris Kaiser, and Sean Campbell. An InfoSec Pro on Twitter suggested that we should let events drive security, not checklists. And in an industry that prides itself on making checklists, do you agree or disagree? And why?
1: This is Chris. The quote that was was specific to say not only events, but also scenarios. And I agree with this. Checklists are good as a starting point. Problem is good security changes. So you kind of need to anticipate what might be coming next if you stick to the same checklist day after day after day. New things are evolving, new attacks are being created, new methods of getting into your environment, new ways to exploit you in your systems are always being invented. So if you have static security in a static checklist, you're missing out on a lot of possible avenues that you know people might take to, to get into your environment or, or abuse your uh, your systems. So I think it's not that checklists are bad, they're just a little bit out of date. And I think it's something that people need to, to take with a more proactive and evolving viewpoint to, to make sure that you're, you're covering all your bases. Hi, this is Sean Campbell.
2: I think events tend to drive security. Huge emphasis on events. I mean, look at look at Facebook. Unfortunately, they're saving passwords in clear text. Obviously, they're driving innovation, so they're empowering their developers to develop, 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 code, code, code. And regardless of the fact of not realizing that login information was being saved in clear text, nothing really made that a priority until it was brought to the attention of the common people. And do you think that drove a change in the way they design their applications now to be more secure? Absolutely. Is there probably a checklist in the team room of the local Facebook development team? Probably. Is there a shared file that has a checklist on things you should probably do or not do? I'd imagine so. And we can clearly see that this fell through the cracks and a huge, huge problem. Hi, this is Mike Buckby.
3: And I think, honestly, this is a really weird way of, phrasing this whole situation, that it's events and scenarios that you need to come up with, and then that's the threat. And then the checklists are what you need to do process-wise internally to then, you know, deal with that. I guess that's driving security. <laughs> so I guess it's events and scenarios, but I think it's a little bit of cart and the horse versus horse in the cart and which one's driving which.
0: In our industry, chief information security officer is responsible for making important decisions, such as whether you follow a checklist or let events drive your security plans. And it's safe to say it's a pretty tough job and it's also hard to find a CISO to talk openly about the security matters of a company that they're currently working at. So for instance, recently at RSA, there were two CISOs who spoke about their work and approach, but they were in between jobs and they talked about how they're so busy looking at the high level management of their job, they don't have time to look into the nitty-gritty details and they trust their team to sort of guide him on on where to go and what to do. And this pretty much confirmed my theory about how they hire people to focus on the work while they focus on the overall direction of how they keep the company safe and secure. And I was just wondering, what did you find interesting when it came to the life of a CISO and how they approached their work?
1: I thought it was interesting how much it mirrors there's a lot of you know other management that I've seen in the past where there's people at the high level don't have the time, the bandwidth, the ability. Like it could be wrong. Maybe they may have the ability, but at least the I guess time and bandwidth is the best way to put it to focus on these the small details, the little bits of, of how this is all going to actually work. You know, you know, CISO can take time, take a look at a new product or a new device or something like that that's going to help make security better or easier for the organization. But when it comes down to actually implementing it, doing the the, the configuration, making sure everything is is in place properly it's often a gap for them and i don't think it's their fault whatsoever i think it's just a matter of how this all works you know the the, the way that the, the structures kind of played out i thought that was pretty fascinating to see a lot of parallels with what i've seen in the past
2: yeah i would agree with that one of the things that stuck out to me i think the the title CISO, anything really with security manager in it you almost become the most appealing target for a company trying to pitch the solution for a problem that they think they're in the best position to solve and one of the things they said was those emails, a lot of times are they're going to get archived. I'm never going to look at them. Your best bet is to go via a trusted advisor, or you should probably find someone trusted on my team, boots on the ground, think manager, or someone directly involved in, let's say, the architecture team, as a matter of fact, and allow them to champion what you're pitching up the ladder as opposed to the other way around. And that totally makes sense because we're always sort of preaching, get to the CISO, get to the CISO. But really, you want to make the team underneath the CISO advocates prior to even, even, before it even gets to him. I thought that was a great perspective. And then the other side to that was quite frankly, the whole industry talks. So if you have already established a relationship with a CISO, make sure that you've executed on what that CISO invested in, because chances are that CISO will likely be an advocate for you to another CISO, which potentially would then get you in the door there.
1: Or potentially have a negative thing to say about you to another CISO and that could spread the same way.
2: Absolutely. If you, if for example, the execution doesn't happen and, you know, essentially it fails in what we see time and time again, just make the sale and move on. Imagine you, you get the deal done, you're on to the next customer and you never really executed on the partnership that you established with that company. And guess what? That's going to leave a lasting impression and that CISO will likely communicate his feelings towards you as a vendor to his colleague.
3: All right. Well, first off, I have a complaint, which is that I thought we'd agree we're calling it CISO, not CISO. So now I feel a little left out. I really would have appreciated this coming up at the beginning. (laughs) Um,
2: Can we get a poll on that, please?
3: (laughs) I don't know. I've always said CZI. We drop a
2: poll on that, and and I'll I'll, I'll also give bonus prize money to the best person who spells out the pronunciation of both. C Z I.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think actually the, we started this off with saying like, is it events and scenarios or is it checklists? And I I think this flows very well into this where the CISO or CISO, if you're somewhere else, I don't know, New York style pronunciation there, I would not expect the executive at that level to be, you know, going through the checklist, but I would expect them to be, you know, declaring, Oh, here is what we're concerned about. Like here are the events. Here is the scenario that I think is going to happen, you know, most readily. And because of that, you know, I need to then have my trusted advisors work on this. And, you know, we're talking a lot. Verona's like our big thing is data security. Like that's a different way of approaching this whole problem. And that's something we're trying to communicate to, you know, like Sean was saying, like the boots on the ground, as well as the people in the C-suite, just what exactly is happening, like why they should take that.
1: I'm going to go on record and saying it's pronounced seesaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the
3: kindergartner's pronunciation coming through. (laughs) How do we influence these seesaws? They're tipping (laughs) everywhere. It's a mess.
0: It was a really synchronistic day for me when I prepared for the podcast. And I found an event promotion in Paris about navigating your first year as a first-time seesaw. And... (laughs) I just thought it was wonderful for for two reasons. One is that now we can create as many events as we want, promote it and just invite individuals and share practical solutions to how to become a seesaw. And it's just how back then you have these large conferences and it's very, again, I felt like back then people had just was very cautious about how they shared their information. Now you can just sort of create your own event and then promote it. and and to teach people really practical things that you can learn. And I looked through, not it'd be nice if I could head to Paris, but I just, I was sort of curious what the class objectives would be. And it really stood out to me where then your entire career focusing on the deep technical expertise in your domain, and then you get promoted and you have a whole host of other problems that require, a completely different mindset. And for me, this is the biggest question and sort of biggest problem I think a CISO would have is which security discipline needs the most attention? How does somebody who's always been technically adapt to people and the processes of being a leader and which projects should you prioritize and how you build out the best team? And when you've had to engage with a CISO in, in your experience, what's usually on their priority list? And what surprised you about what a CISO is or has to be responsible for?
2: I found it interesting at the various levels of, I would say, hands-on technical experience the CISOs I've come across have. And the reason being is because the farther up they go, the less hands-on they are with the actual products their teams are using. So you almost heard the comment from the, the RSA Interview where the the CISO said that you know he's he he pays much he pays people much smarter than him to actually handle all that stuff. And it that that kind of resonated because I've been in quite a few meetings where they just really weren't they weren't as technical. You almost had to treat them as a C level, which they are to some extent, but the C level, maybe non-business way, non-technical way rather of explaining you know what you do as an organization. But what I would say is would be important in terms of how a CISO would prioritize is there needs to be some sort of segmentation on, well, this team is responsible for making sure that all of the applications and IT systems that help us make money on the day-to-day basis have uptime and have a whole team dedicated for that as far as servicing those systems and dealing with tickets, you name it. Then security needs to focus on how do we secure our systems so that our revenue generating operations aren't as risk from, let's say, external attackers or internal misconfigurations or other forms of insider threats. I think where the cross-pollination comes into play, you'll find there's not a lot of order and things tend to fall right between the cracks. And we see that a lot in the position that we are in as a company, where things like overexposed data was brushed to the side. It's not, it's not really a priority. It was never a priority because when you're outlining what's important and what's, you know, affecting the bottom line, you get to Missed, in other words. So I think there there has to be a clear definition of what does a security department do, and then what is left to let's say IT in general, like help desk, architecture, storage, if that makes sense.
1: Just by, by the nature of what he just said, you know, all the different places and, and departments or sub departments that a CISO has to have knowledge about and have his hands in, by the very nature of being more of a generalist there than a specialist, that's I think where a lot of the you know the the, the understanding or the, the the thought process people. have. Have about you know, CISOs are less technical, it's not the less technical, you just have to know a lot about more topics than everybody else. You know, so one guy who's managing one application is going to be a genius on that, and that may have been the case for the CISO in a, in a former life. But they have to know so many different things and understand how they all play together that there's no way for a person to have intimate knowledge of every single system, every single product or, or application. Or, or, you know, it's just nearly impossible. So it's not that they're not technical, it's that their attention and their, their brains are just in, in so many different spots at once. You kind of have to, you know, adjust really I
3: don't know I feel like there's a lot said about this already and I was really working on some sort of like you know French pronunciation for CISO for the last five minutes but uh <laughs> that can be
1: arranged I, it's sizzler <laughs>
3: I'm a sizzler how do you as a sizzler take the security <laughs> issues that come out there needs to be a prioritization there needs to be you know clear roles and responsibilities there needs to be you know an assessment and sort of stack ranking of what I would describe how I would frame what Sean said is that there are urgent security matters and there are important security matters and they don't always match up and so you oftentimes have something like you know oh well half the company including the intern that was just hired yesterday can get all these sensitive files that's important they not be able Able to do that. But there's a server that's on fire, you know, with attacks, that's a whole different issue.
0: Well, I'm going to throw a wrench in all your responses. Because what if you want a security solution that you can't afford? So, you know, it's easy to say, it doesn't matter how much you spend on cybersecurity. If you just keep acquiring stuff, but never use it, or you find something that you really like, but it's beyond the budget. Budget cost is a real, real problem. How would you approach the balance between how much money you have to getting the right security solution for your company that you actually use and implement?
1: I think about it as it's w- with any other skill or any other any other discipline. Money doesn't make you make you a better carpenter, a better baseball player. You know, but going out and buying all the gear in the world. You know, I want to become a, a good carpenter. And go out and buy a really nice set of tools. I, I get myself a. Really nice space to do it. I spruce the whole thing up. I make it really perfect. I have yet to learn anything about how any of this works. I have not improved my situation whatsoever. It's a matter of knowing what you're actually purchasing, how to use it, how the things that you're purchasing work together. And then it's more about knowledge and understanding how best to use the things you are purchasing as opposed to I have a giant pile of money and let's just throw it at whatever solutions we can find.
2: To piggyback, I also have humbly learned the difference between vulnerability and risk. So you have certain levels of Of What would be considered a vulnerability? And then what are the chances that it becomes a risk to your organization? And what that equates to a lot of times is, well, why would I spend the money on this very expensive tool when we don't really prioritize this as a high risk for our organization? The problem you're solving is probably great for a global enterprise, but for my mid-market shop, and don't get me wrong, we are growing. I I think we're in a great place in the market. However, I don't think that risk is worth the cost of your product. And I think that it as a vulnerability being exploited is very minimal, minimal. I think it's very, there's a slim chance that that vulnerability could actually be exploited and cause real harm to the organization. I'm not denying that it's not a potential problem, but we're going to swallow that risk weighing the costs, in other words. And so we, I've seen that happen. And that's the way they're dealing with not being able to afford all the tools that they may you know, like and just can't afford. So I think there's an there's an
3: interesting line through that, which is that, you know, a lot of the security tools are both something that gains you knowledge and insights into your system and then help with the remediation. And, you know, most of the tools do, you know, some aspects of both of those. And so you have these real gaps and these real blind spots in organizations where, you know, you may not know that there's a vulnerability. And without knowing what that the size and the extent of that vulnerability, you can't adequately judge the risk. Therefore, where you can't adequately, you know, make the right call as to what you should spend money on and what you should prioritize. So, you know, where should you invest your cybersecurity budget? I think the first thing you should invest in is knowledge. And you know, it's not enough to buy software. You have to have the people in place to use it. You have to have the processes and the breathing room and the prioritization to actually learn and do these things. It's no good to buy the software and keep it on a shelf um, just to tick a box on a checklist.
0: Hey, Sean, when you said you humbly learned. The- the difference between vulnerability and risk, I imagine you experienced that multiple times, which is why you said humbly.
2: Absolutely right, because there were times where the assessment was, to Mike's point, it was something that they weren't even aware of. We provided something to them. It was one of those things, I didn't know what I didn't know. And while we laid out to them why these are potential vulnerabilities that could be exploited and the risk is not something that should be ignored, when they took that back, and it against their environment, their business and their bottom line, it was way too much money given what they had in terms of budget. And it was something that they were able to live with, despite the fact that they weren't actually denying what we were presenting back to them. And so it was a hard pill to swallow to actually have to walk away and, and, and say they need this but they're not going to buy it.
3: I had assumed Sean had, like, arrogantly learned this six or seven times before humbly learning it once, so...
0: (laughs) Another wrench I'd like to throw in the mix, I came across another Bruce Schneer blog post. And if it wasn't on his blog, I I wouldn't even present it because I think if I just sort of read it on Twitter or some, and it came from another security pro, I would pass on it. But for him to say, oh, this is interesting that there's an argument that cybersecurity in general is basically okay. And I to click on the paper and it talks about how we've been able to advert major disasters and how the biggest disaster was 9-11 and we should just accept that our systems will be insecure and recognize that insecurity often arises in systematic ways and we can use some of those methods and turn it into defense mechanisms and uh, that some degree of security is needed but it's just a tool for achieving other social and economic goals. And it's sort of like, oh, we've worked so hard to help nurture as a CISO, CISO, and then now cybersecurity is... Is okay. It's not that important. Do you agree? Disagree? What are your thoughts?
1: This reminds me of something I've seen Bruce and say before about the idea of imperfect security. Basically, he had this whole thing about how you don't have to be 100% perfect, locked down, airtight, because it, it all kind of comes down to kind of like what Sean was Sean saying before: is the risk of something? You know, is there something that we need to really lock down? You know, if there is an issue, if there's you know, we have sensitive content, very important stuff, crown jewels. Yeah, you know, maybe invest in really good security. For for that kind of information. But if you have, say, you know, an old tool shed with a couple old bikes in there, and you don't you don't need to buy the n- newest, greatest lock to lock it down. You need that padlock because it's not that important. Even if it does get compromised, it's not gonna wreck everything. You have to take take a look at it and, and evaluate what's the most important thing to lock down, what's the most critical stuff, invest there, make sure that it's that, that is, you know, airtight, but not maybe not worry about every little thing everywhere. Maybe not, you know, let it overwhelm you.
2: I think that was a ex- it was a bit extreme to say it's not very important. To his point, I don't know to what scale was he weighing not having a catastrophic cyber attack, you know, equivalent to like a in a digital sense, equivalent to like, I want to use like a terrorist attack is a little extreme, but equivalent to something like that. I feel as though cybersecurity is very important because the decentralization of data and the way the web is growing and the ways in which which information is now becoming pretty much sold without even our knowledge. People are gaining monetarily. They're, they're actually going after this information on the dark web. They can imagine what you could buy about folks for 20, 50, 100 bucks. You, you'd have no clue. And I, I think a huge threat that is probably being overlooked are hacktivists. Quite frankly, I think that the hacktivist is probably the one of the most dangerous, I would say, Potential actors in the next century. And what I mean by that is a hacktivist, quite frankly, if you think about anonymous, they could stage an attack on some of the most important companies, you know, in terms of industrial, in terms of financial. They could easily do that. Are we prepared to to block that? You know, as a nation state, are we prepared to defend our nation, let's say, from another nation state in cyber warfare? These things are going on right now. So to to sort of just brush aside cybersecurity as not being important. I don't want to go as far as say he's naive, but that certainly is not the case. I can point out plenty of scenarios where a situation escalated all because of the motivation to defame that entity. Case in point, there is a podcast that I've listened to and they just look at over history, really bad cyber attacks. And there was a hospital up in Boston that misdiagnosed a girl, basically said she was crazy, put her in a what's equivalent to basically an insane asylum for children, took her away from her family. And the family now, was being accused of mistreating the daughter, Difus got involved so Anonymous got involved attacked the hospital, literally to the point where systems were down and this is just a one-off, this is a single guy who staged this imagine that being a team of people globally all motivated to go after something you know, that's a potential threat that can't just be brushed aside as oh, you know, cyber security is really not that important.
3: See, I I wonder if you're missing it, Sean, and I'm not trying to like
2: No, no, I'm all all for it. Yeah. Help
3: me out. I don't think he's saying that we're missing it, but that, you know, I, I view the stuff in terms of economics. Like that's my background. And I think that's super interesting and no one else in the world does. So if this is too boring and everyone falls asleep, that's cool too. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> people do spend a lot right now on security. They do like there's security budgets. Our company is based on this. And in general, you got to kind of think like, well, the market is not going to rush out and get way ahead in terms of spending on security that they don't need. And for like what you're saying, like everything you're saying is true, Sean, like there's these individual attacks. I would actually put more than the individual attacks, like stuff like what happened to Maersk with uh, the cyber attack and ransomware. And they went down their internal statement is that cost than 300 million dollars like that's a huge cost Yeah, yeah and you know there's all these data breaches and things and how do you account for the cost of that versus what it takes to prevent it where at the same time you know lots and lots of stuff is prevented lots and lots of companies you know they have a cyber attack they some data gets out everyone gets a new credit report you know and they just go on about their lives and it's bad not saying it's good but we're sort of muddling along through it and it's just that the the level of spending and the level of preparation and the level of effort put into the security side of things, in general, matches the level of attack. And I think where that gets messed up is when you have new things like ransomware. Like ransomware really changed the game as far as people being able to extract money from companies and individuals. And so therefore, there was a lot more economic incentive to really get into organizations and, you know, blackmail people and like all these dramatic things. So I don't think it's that, you know, Bruce Neier is saying, hey, everything. Great. It's it's not a worry. It's just that in general, you know, we're we're keeping up with it. Not great all the times. We're not 100% locked down. We're not prepared for the next 10 years. But looking at today versus uh, 10 years ago, we're better than we
2: were. It's almost like a like a get by approach. But let's not all run around like chickens with our head cut off because you know we we might we might get attacked.
3: Yeah. So there's thousands. My point is there's thousands of hospitals in the U.S. One of them gets attacked horribly. They upgrade their their router to do better fire. Walls and endpoint security they you know do better data security and they're they're better for the next time and yeah it's just that's just how it's going to go 10 years from now we'll be like oh the quantum attacks on the hospital <laughs> were you know yeah. totally messed up the yeah and we'll be like how could they not see that how coming? they see it you know? coming yeah
0: yeah
2: 100 so, percent. yeah that's it's just it's it just stays in sync. Now makes sense. Thanks, Mike. That's good.
0: So to close out, instead of a tool of the week, someone took notes at a presentation and listed out myths we believe, and there are three of them. One is users are dumb, the basics are easy, and we have the answers. And I, I can maybe see both sides because of how long we've been doing the podcast and just doing research and listening to people speak and hear different arguments and I'd like to turn it back to each one of you where Mike responds to users are dumb, Chris can respond to the basics are easy and Sean can respond to we have the answers, whether or not you agree or disagree with the myth and why.
3: Great, I'll start. Users are dumb, I disagree. I think this actually mirrors a lot of what I was just talking about. I think users, they're in a company, they're trying to get their work done, they're trying to get their work done so they can go home and do what they need to do to do that. And, you know, they just get inundated with all sorts of other things that are not in their responsibility and not in their knowledge. And so they skip over them.
1: All right. It's Chris. Mine is the basics are easy. Is this a myth or not? Yeah, it's a myth. Think about how many basic aspects of cybersecurity aren't done well. How many people make dumb mistakes? You know, I'm not saying all users them. I'm not even just saying users. I'm saying people in security as well. Sean mentioned earlier on Facebook keeping user passwords in clear text. This should be the basics. Clearly, not the simplest thing to do. Or, you know, there's other aspects of of the job that they're performing that gets in the way of that. I, I, I agree that it's 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 a myth. I also would have to ask the question: Who are we talking about? Are we talking about people in infosec? To them, the basics are going to be completely different from a you know somebody who just got a computer for the first time thinks of us, the basics. So it's it's a myth. This stuff is harder than we think it is. But again, it does all kind of come down to from what perspective.
2: And this is Sean. So we we have the answers. I don't agree. I, I think that is an empty statement. They need to be more clear because depending on who you're talking to, they may have an answer, but it's probably the wrong answer. Or they may have an answer and it might be the the right answer. So in terms of having the answer, it really depends upon what the question is and what the approach is to answering it. And it goes back to just to to knowledge, right? And being honest and transparent. I don't know what I don't know, but I am open to the InfoSec community for knowledge sharing to better understand that. And then in turn, in time, I'll know how to get the answer. And I, I think that would address that myth in a much easier way than sort of saying we know it all you know we have all the answers we're fine
3: yeah we were we were joking a little bit earlier about Sean saying humbly but I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment that you know users aren't dumb we, we don't have the answers and the more you think that the I think the the worse your internal security is so
0: so you don't think humans are the weakest link
3: I don't think you can talk about this respectfully and say humans are the weakest link without including yourself in that. <laughs> Without saying that we as security practitioners are also into this and responsible for it. As a side note to this, this is Chad Loader. I think I'm pronouncing his last name right. And this is where a company, we can't endorse other companies and stuff. There's all sorts of things. So, on a personal note, I'll just say he has a very interesting company that makes funny security videos for, you know, education and for trying to get users, you know, to better think about and conceptualize these risks and work on things. And it's, I think it's really interesting. So, I think, you know, he's living what He's, he's describing here as well.
0: Thanks to Mike Buckby, Chris Kaiser, Sean Campbell, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our panel discussion, please subscribe to our show. You can find more episodes of the Inside Out Security Show on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, and more. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. It helps them discover great discussions like we had today. Thanks, guys.
2: Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.